Good morning, West Bowles. How are you this morning? Please uh, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I um, always appreciate our praise and worship music set and the choral anthem. Boy, especially this morning, the Holy Spirit was at work in Craig and in Steve and the praise team and the choir because... um, I can think of no more appropriate songs for us to be experiencing God and praise and worship or an anthem than what we heard this morning. God's incredible love, God's incredible steadfastness to stay by our side no matter what. Oh no, He'll never let us go. And um, it's God's love, really, as we'll see, I hope, this morning, that we started talking about two weeks ago when we introduced the topic of pain, persecution, and conflict. We discovered, if you remember, that when we attempt to bring the kingdom of God to the world, we will experience pain, persecution, and conflict. Jesus warned His disciples of this very thing. If they persecute Me, He said, they will persecute you. And Paul tells Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We will encounter pain, persecution, and conflict when we try to bring the kingdom of God into the world. Luke, our author of Acts, which we've been looking at now for several months, Luke's been carefully developing this message of pain, persecution, and conflict in the opening chapters of Acts. Have you noticed? In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested and taken before the Jewish leadership council that Sanhedrin And they're given a verbal warning. Stop speaking in Jesus' name. In the very next chapter, Acts 5, we learn that surprise, surprise, conflict can occur within the church community as well. Fancy that, yes? This time when Ananias and Sapphira struggle with transparency and lie about an offering. Later in the same chapter, Luke tells us of more conflict outside the church when the Sanhedrin shows up yet again, this time arresting all of the disciples. And they not only get a tongue lashing, but a real lashing as they're flogged before being let go. Very next chapter in Acts chapter 6, we're back inside the church. As you heard last week, when certain widows at least were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And that brings us this morning to Acts chapters 6 and 7, a a culmination of sorts of this pain, persecution, and conflict that Luke is weaving. In chapters 6 and 7, once again, the Sanhedrin shows up, this time to sit in judgment over a Jew, a Jewish Christian named Stephen. And as we'll see in a minute, the persecution intensifies yet another notch as that Sanhedrin condemns Stephen to death and he is executed. We could, if we wanted, 
continue through all 28 chapters in Acts with this thread, this pattern of pain, persecution, and conflict. Luke is relentless in giving us many examples. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that up to that point in his ministry, and he still had many years left, but up to that point even, Paul tells us he's been flogged five times, beaten with rods three times, stoned once and left for dead outside of Lystra, and shipwrecked three times. Listen to his words as he wraps up the account of his best life now in 2 Corinthians. Listen to Paul. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles. In danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled, and I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Is that the best life now? In fact, it is. But don't let anyone fool you. It's the best life now, Paul later testifies and testifies through all his ministry, not because God takes all of pain, persecution, and conflict away, but because, oh no, He never let Paul go. The Christian life is the best life now because God is constantly, relentlessly with us, working for good in the persecution, pain, and conflict. As reliable history tells us, Paul finally gives his very life, as does each and every disciple of Jesus, and many more, like Stephen in our story this morning, all because of their passion to bring the kingdom of God to the world in the name of Jesus Christ. Pain, persecution, and conflict, often ending in death, inundates the New Testament. The blood of the martyrs soaks its pages as well as the pages of church history. And the cry goes up, Why, God, all of this pain? Why? If God is indeed good, and He is, and if He is indeed all-powerful, and He is, then why does He allow such suffering and evil in the world? This question, this tough question, is one we began wrestling with two weeks ago. I suggested to you then that two results, at least two good things that can result from pain, persecution, and conflict for Christians is that when we experience pain, something rather remarkable, something supernatural even happens given the presence of the Holy Spirit. The pain results in a passion to teach the good news of Jesus all the more. And the pain we experience can even cause us joy. Because in Luke's words, 
We've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. Many Christians throughout history have been marked with an incredible resiliency, an incredible ability to to press back harder than they are being pressed upon. Whoever coined the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, they could well have used Christians throughout church history as prime examples. The harder the devil presses us, the harder we press back, perhaps even with shouts of joy at the opportunity to be like Jesus. And the louder still, we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? This has been a lasting, enduring mark of the church. Its response to pain, persecution, and suffering. Now this morning, we'll add two more results of pain, persecution, and conflict to our list. Two more results of good that God works in the midst of it all. And we'll do that using the story of Stephen. And then with the time we have left, I'd like to dig a little deeper into the heart of the matter, into the heart, really, foundation of that question and its answer. Why is it that God allows so much pain? First, the story of Stephen. Your Bibles are open to Acts chapter 6. And one of the first things we notice as we scan chapter 6, 7, and even creeping into 8 This story must be pretty important to Luke because it's pretty long. Most of it's Stephen's speech before the Sanhedrin again. It's the longest speech of any in the entire book of Acts. Too long to read it all in the time we have this morning, but I will try and summarize some of its key points. You can follow along as you like if you have your Bibles before you. And I've got some things on the screen. The hero of the story is Stephen. Stephen, you recall from last week, is one of the seven that were chosen to help wait on tables. Remember, in the beginning of Acts chapter 6. In our story this morning, he's not waiting on tables, however. He's out performing miracles and teaching about Jesus. It appears his target audience is Hellenistic Jews. That is, Jews not from Judea and Israel, but Jews who lived elsewhere in the Roman world, probably including descendants of those Jews that were scattered even 600 years before when Babylon came in and conquered Israel. Some of these Hellenistic Jews from the wor- around the world, they take exception to Stephen's teaching. In short, it appears they don't much like what Stephen is saying about the effect of Gentiles, non-Jews, the effect that Gentiles now being full partners in the community of faith is having in particular on Jewish laws, custom, and the temple. And so these Jews stir up an angry mob. And Stephen is literally hauled before the Sanhedrin There that Sanhedrin is again. It's a busy little beaver Jewish council, isn't it? There they are again, and Stephen is asked to answer for the trumped-up charges against him. 
Specifically, Stephen is charged with preaching blasphemy. Blasphemy against Moses, God, the law, Jewish customs or oral law, and the temple itself. Stephen's speech before the Jewish Leadership Council has three major themes. First, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin that their insistence on geography, their insistence on Israel only, misses the point. It's not just about Israel anymore. And it really never has been, is Stephen's argument. Stephen dredges up and uses the examples of Abraham, Joseph, and Moses far before there was any land of Israel to show and to emphasize, listen, Sanhedrin, God has always been alive and well in places other than Israel. And so when I teach, when we teach the gospel of Jesus Christ extending beyond the land of Israel, maybe you shouldn't treat it with such scorn and contempt. Second big point he makes, Stephen tells the Sanhedrin that their insistence on the temple misses the point. Now, when Stephen does this, when he starts messing around with the very polished money-making machine of the temple, he really starts stepping on Sadducean toes. The temple was the bread and butter for the Sadducees. They made a killing running the temple. It was the source of their personal wealth, power, and status. And Stephen talks about the temple by talking about Moses encountering God in a burning bush on Mount Sinai in the wilderness and the people's experience of God in the tabernacle to show that God, again, has always been alive and well in places other than the temple in Jerusalem. And so now likewise, with Gentiles and even in and among Gentiles through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as God's new temple around the world. Finally, Stephen emphasizes throughout his speech that many of their Jewish ancestors, Stephen and the Sanhedrin alike, Rejected God's representatives. Have you noticed in reading the Old Testament, there's some rejecting going on? Stephen talks about Joseph being rejected by his brothers and being sold into Egypt. He talks about Moses being rejected by the people of Israel several times. And many of God's prophets were also rejected. And then Stephen gets to his closing statement. In chapter 7, verses 51 and following. And this closing statement is the last straw that gets him sentenced to death and executed. And he really puts an exclamation point on his statement. After saying to Sanhedrin, it's not just about Israel. It's not just about the temple. And yes, we Jews have a long history of rejecting God's messenger. Stephen puts a big fat exclamation point on his speech. He says it straight to Israel's corrupt spiritual leaders. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. This is the first time Stephen uses your fathers rather than our fathers. Twelve times, in fact, in chapter 7, 
Steve refers to Jewish ancestors as our ancestors or us. Remember, Stephen is Jewish too. But now he suddenly points his finger, at least metaphorically, at the spiritual leaders of Israel in particular and says, your fathers, very clearly, in my opinion, speaking to that leadership specifically. Remember, Stephen is himself Jewish. You stiff-necked people, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Oh, Stephen, (laughs) that was pretty much it for our hero. If he had more to say, he wasn't given the chance to say it. Verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. Did you notice, especially at the end there, how similar to Jesus Stephen is? Stephen faces trumped-up charges of blasphemy. He's accused of threatening the temple. He's given an undeserved death sentence. And as he's dying, as the stones hit his body, he actually prays for their forgiveness and asks that God receives his spirit. Wow. If it were me, I'd probably be calling down every curse I could possibly think of on those Sadducees. But not Stephen. He's just like Jesus. What can we add to our list of what good can God work in and result from our pain, persecution, and conflict? At least two more things, I think. The first is witness or an opportunity to witness. Listen to the very next verse. On that day, the day that Stephen is put to death, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. What results from Stephen's pain? Stephen's death results in perhaps the largest witness to others ever 
other than Jesus' own death. The early Christians scattered given the redoubled persecution caused by Stephen's death. Stephen dies, and because of that, the Gospel message ends its love-fest concentration in Jerusalem only. They run, eventually to the ends of the earth, taking the Gospel with them because Stephen sacrificed his life. Another result of, of good coming from pain, persecution, and conflict is personal growth. When we persevere through pain, we're better prepared, we're strengthened to meet the next challenge in life. And perhaps the next one's going to be greater and tougher as we try to bring the kingdom of God to the world. Now, at first glance, it may seem there are better examples of personal growth than Stephen's story. I mean, the guy dies. Um, kind of crimps your personal growth cycle when you end up dying. But I think we can see personal growth nevertheless that results from Stephen's death. Not maybe so much to him necessarily, although he's growing, I'm sure, uh, into very nearly Jesus himself, or at least very Christ-like as he's praying for forgiveness. But the personal growth, maybe not necessarily to Stephen himself, but what about the personal growth it causes others? Do you suppose those who remained to continue bringing the gospel to the world were strengthened by what happened to Stephen? Did those who scatter into the world take with them now a certain new resolve to make Stephen's sacrifice worth it? to honor the legacy of a fallen brother in Christ by making sure to press all the harder for Jesus because of what Stephen sacrificed? And what about Saul standing there by the coats, giving his approval? Um, it may be that because of Saul's position, he in fact was in charge of making sure that the stoning went according to the law. What about him? Who can say, after Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, after Jesus gets a hold of him, how many times during his ministry Paul looked back on Stephen's stoning and wept? How deeply that day and others like it where Paul hunted down and persecuted men, women, and children. How deeply that haunted him and perhaps drove him to persevere all the more. Because of Stephen's sacrifice of his life, because of Stephen's death, the good news of Jesus Christ storms out of Jerusalem into the world. And oh, would our own sacrifice, even if it means our very lives, would our own sacrifice help accomplish even a fraction of what Stephen's sacrifice did? Last, this morning, I'd like to dig a little deeper into the heart of that question of why it is that God allows pain. Sure, God can work through pain so there are good effects. It can result in bold humility, transparency, joy, proclaiming Jesus all the more, witness and personal growth. But does a question still remain? Couldn't an all-powerful God have found better ways 
less painful paths to achieve these albeit good results? Why does it all have to include so much pain, persecution, and conflict? I think part of the answer at least is something called free will. Now, as soon as we start talking about free will, our ability to make real choices that matter, even though at the same time God is completely sovereign and in control, as soon as we talk about that paradox, our eyes can begin to glaze over a bit because we really start wading into the deep end of the theological, apologetic Christian pool. It's kind of like trying to wrap our mind around and and answer that old question. Do you remember it? If a tree falls in a forest with no one to hear it, does it still make a sound? Some of you enjoy wrestling with those sorts of riddles. Maybe you've heard a more recent version of that question. If a man says something in a forest and his wife isn't there to hear him, is he still wrong? Yeah, I hear lots of women saying, yes, still wrong. That free will question versus God's sovereignty can be like that, for most of us at least, including me. It, it involves wincing a bit at trying to wrap our minds around it. But I'm going to give it my best shot this morning because nothing, in my opinion, better explains at least why pain must be in the world, even for and even especially for Christians. So here goes. See if um, my explanation uh, causes the tree falling in the forest to make a sound or not, I guess. God created us with free will. He created us with the ability to choose either for God or against God. And He honors that choice. We see this most plainly perhaps in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve choose to disobey God. They eat the apple. And God honors that choice. He doesn't like it. He wishes they would have chosen otherwise. In fact, it breaks His great loving heart. But He allows that choice to stand. And here's where those apologetic waters can get a bit deep. If there were no pain, persecution, or conflict in the world, if there was only good, if there was only God and no devil, there wouldn't be any real choice to be made, would there? There would be only one thing to choose between. And that, of course, is no choice at all. So in order for God's intended and designed and desired free will for us to mean anything at all, there has to be a real choice. If there isn't a real choice, then free will means absolutely nothing. How are we doing so far? Anyone besides me wincing yet? How about this illustration? Light. Light needs darkness, or otherwise light loses all meaning or benefit or effect. If the room is brightly lit and I turn on another light, well, big deal. 
Nobody might even notice. But if the room is pitch dark, or if there are dark corners where we can't see, and someone goes there and lights even the smallest candle, the effect is amazing. Everyone goes, whoa! And they're drawn to that light. And the light then, because of the darkness, is special and cherished and needed and useful. Why? Because of the darkness, in a way. Without darkness, light is meaningless. God desires for us to have free will. And free will is meaningless if we don't have a real choice to make between God and evil. And therefore, I'm suggesting the evil is necessary, for a while at least, so that our choice of God is actually a real choice for God. I've got one more illustration. Actually, two. And it involves a robot and a movie clip. So how bad could it be, right? Joseph had his coat of many colors, but he had nothing on this bag. I brought my robot. I know, you know, you guys especially want to see the robot, right? Now, with my robot, I have a remote control. Whoever created this robot, and the remote control is daunting a bit because there's all sorts of buttons, but whoever created the robot can pretty much make the robot do whatever they want. So, let's see if I want the robot to... Then if I get tired of the robot doing that, I can say, well, okay, robot, how about... Uh-oh, the robot has taken a life of its own. Yeah, okay, robot. Or, let's see. wonder if he can dance. See, now, if I had shown this about... 30 days before Christmas, it could have sold a ton of them, right? Now, as the robot does his thing according to the remote, you know what button does not appear on this remote? There's no button on here that says, Robot, I want you to love me. You're all worried the robot's going to hurt himself falling down the stairs, so... Give the robot a hand. I mean, (laughs) there's no button on this robot that says, all right, robot, love me. We are not robots. God did not create a universe full of robots. He created a world full of human beings that have free will. And when you compare the two, What glory is there to God if He creates a being that can't really choose to love Him or not? That just loves Him because God, in effect, 
reinforces it. That glory is far less, isn't it? If a sovereign God can create a being and give it somehow in His sovereignty the free will to choose to love, and if and when that happens, how much is God glorified? There's no love me button on this remote. And you know what? Last time I checked, you check over your body too. There's no love me button on us either. God didn't create us with one. God gave us real choice. And again, if there's no pain and struggle in our lives, if we don't know and experience a taste at least of what choosing against God, of what life without God is like, if it's all good all the time, if God is Aladdin in the lamp granting our every wish, well, wouldn't it be like God forcing us to love Him? Because there'd really be no other option than to love God. A man named Bruce in the movie Bruce Almighty, he ran into this same question of free will. I went back and forth on choosing this clip because about 99% of the movie Bruce Almighty makes me wince, at least at the theology. (laughs) But this scene at least captures something that I wanted to share with you. Bruce, if you remember, was given for a time all the power of Almighty God. Why? Because he thought he could do a better job, ultimately, with all the pain in the world than God was doing. Interesting premise, isn't it? I'll give them that. But Bruce, in trying to exercise God's power, takes it further than even God Himself allows. Why? Because of God's design for free will. Let's watch and see what you think. Let's go inside. All right, kids, everybody inside. Time to go inside. Grace, please, none of this seems right without you. Yeah, I gotta go. Wait! feel now? Have you completely lost your mind? What, are you drunk? Yeah, I'm drunk. Drunk the tower. Love me. Love me. Love me! I did. Yeah, I know. Free will. God will not force us to love Him. Why? Well, love becomes something else if it's forced. Doesn't it? Isn't the nature of love unconditional love? Is that it's not forced? God wants us to choose Him, not because we're forced to, but only when we want to, our choice, because we love Him unconditionally. For free will to mean anything, 
For there to truly be a free choice, to truly love God, there must be an option of not choosing God. And that option of not choosing God requires, for a while, the existence of pain, persecution, and conflict. We're out of time. So what now? First, choose this day whom you will serve, as Joshua invited the people of Israel. Exercise your free will to choose God, come what may. Choose God no matter what. And second, take comfort and even joy. In fact, in the fact that um, pain is ultimately tied to God's love. His insistence that He gives us this God of the universe an integrity and a character and an independence. He honors our choices. His design that we have indeed a real decision to make between heaven which is real and hell that is real. The biblical picture, in my opinion, is something like this. God implores us, hang in there, keep standing, you standing stones, no matter the weather that beats against you. Know that I love you deeply. Don't give up. I know it hurts. Oh, how I wish it didn't have to. But I need you to trust me that it does have to. Not because I don't love you. I do. Not because I'm not powerful enough to stop it. I am. But because I need people to have a real choice of love to make. And oh, I'm right here. Oh no, I'll never let you go. Keep choosing me. Will you love me no matter what? And one day, I promise, you will see the end of all pain. I promise. And you go ahead and you look it up. I haven't missed a promise yet. Will you choose to love me no matter what? Our answer to that question is tied, my brothers and sisters, into our very salvation as we work it out with fear and trembling, into our very life and witness of the kingdom of God. Job says it this way in the midst of incredible loss and pain. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Will you choose to love God no matter what? Will you? When you do, when we do, we're bringing the kingdom of God to a world desperate for it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know because you told us up front that life, especially the life of one who wishes to be like Jesus, will be full of pain, persecution, and conflict. And we also know, Father, that You promised that no pain would be too great 
for us to bear in Christ Jesus. And you give us your presence constantly with us, never letting us go. You indwell in us your very presence of the Holy Spirit. You're with us every step of the way. And oh, Father, would you please give us eyes and ears and hearts to notice and to see and to feel and to act on your presence with us. Father, we often pray, please, God, be near us. And, oh, Father, you've already promised you always are. And really, Father, our prayer should focus not that you should be near us because you always are, but, Father, would you give us the eyes to see you with us and to be able to act with Bold humility and transparency and joy and witness. Please, Father, would you give us the strength and the courage that we need to do this? We can't do it alone. I thank you, my Father, for this community of believers, this church, who are willing to tell their stories of pain, to encourage one another in the walk through it, and to be be your heart. To be your arms, to be your hugs, to be your listening ears to us, to help us enable to persevere and help us to the good ends of pain, persecution and conflict. Father, thank you for giving us the honor of being able to choose. And thank you for those of us who have chosen you for even giving us the faith to choose You. Oh, Father, we're so happy to belong in Your family. And Father, our heart nevertheless still breaks for those who haven't chosen You. And Father, we dedicate our lives, we dedicate this church to living out loud for Jesus in a way that Father would cause others who don't yet know You to choose You Two out of their free choice. Would you help us, Father? Would you help us to be the instruments and tools of your hands? Would you help us? Would you use us in that way, like you used Stephen, like you used every biblical hero? Would you use us in that way to bring the kingdom of God to a world desperate for it? Father, I lift up my brothers and sisters here this morning to your throne and ask that you give them your blessing. Blessing that doesn't necessarily take away the struggle, but blessing that helps enable them to hold up well under it so that the world may know there is a God in salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in that powerful name that we lift up our prayers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a good week. God bless you as you go. We'll see you next week when we talk about the Apostle Paul. We'll see you then.